Hey, it's Hazard. I know it's been a long time since I've done an episode of the Professionals Playbook, and that's because I've been doing a lot. You know, the biggest thing I've done is I wrote a book. So I wanted to spend this episode talking a little bit about the book, why I wrote it, who it's for, and dive into some questions that you guys have at the end. So the book, it's called The Art of Clear Thinking, A Stealth Fighter Pilot's Timeless Rules for Making Tough Decisions. I think as fighter pilots, the one key thing that we do is make decisions. Every time we go and fly, we make thousands of decisions. And oftentimes there are people's lives on the line. And if you just make one bad decision, you can kill yourself or those around you. So We've really been at the leading edge of decision-making theories since John Boyd helped develop the uh, OODA loop based on his experiences dogfighting during the Korean War. And it's something that we emphasize a lot, both during pilot training and then afterwards when you're a flight lead, when you're an instructor pilot, teaching people how to make good decisions, where their decisions went wrong, debriefing that, and then helping them to get better the next time they fly. So... The book is a distillation of a lot of those lessons. I spent 500 days, 500 plus days in a row writing it. So every morning I would wake up and write for typically four hours or so. I'm a really slow writer, but I wanted it to be a great book. And you know what most people, most authors say is you just have to get the first draft out. Make a crappy first draft. And so that's what I did. I made a crappy first draft. What they don't tell you is now you have a crappy first draft that you have to do a lot of work to. And so I went through nine revisions of this book. I wrote every word of it, and I'm really proud of how it turned out. I wanted it to be a little bit like a Malcolm Gladwell book or a Tool Gawande book where it's primarily storytelling. So I I think there's a lot of kind of contrite advice out there. I think it's from the social media and digital era where people are just throwing out tweets saying you should eat healthy, sleep well, and on and on. But that doesn't provide context. And for me, context is the most important aspect of any advice. The best way to learn something is to do it yourself. The second is to hear a story about how somebody else did it so that you can fit that into your mental model of how the world operates. So I came up with uh, quite a few good stories, some from my time flying, some from important moments in history. For instance, Eisenhower's decision to delay D-Day by a day and then to execute even though they had a really small window uh, to do it because there's more weather rolling in. So I break down that decision. I also break down uh, business decisions. So I talk about how the company called Excite.com back in the day could have bought Google for $750,000 and chose not to. So it's one of the worst business decisions in history. So I break that decision down and some of the factors that led to that. But overall, the book is designed to be entertaining, exciting. It's not for somebody that's just pure in aviation, although there are a lot of good aviation stories into it. I really want it to help people to make better decisions because I think that we're undergoing a fundamental shift right now. We are leveraging technology more so than we've ever done in the past. So the average person uses about 90 watts of electricity with their for their body to run, and yet their technology is being powered by 12,000 watts. The average American burns 12,000 watts of electricity. That powers the technology that is amplifying 
and enhancing the decisions that we're making. So I think we are really changing what leadership means. Leadership used to be primarily management, and that came out from the industrial revolution where you had to manage hundreds, if not thousands of people in a factory. And now technology is replacing and augmenting those people. So when I fly a jet, I'm essentially surrounded by technology. I can fly 100 times faster than I could run. I can carry 100 times more. My sensors see out to the horizon. So I have an impact on the battlefield that is thousands of times greater than I would just on my own. And I think that's playing out in the rest of the world. So the phone that everybody has in their pocket that can do the job of 10 people from a few decades ago. A modern combine harvester can harvest crops hundreds of times faster than by hand. Cars can take you 10 times faster than by foot. So technology and with the rise of AI, there is a big tsunami on the horizon. Bloomberg uh, just came out saying that they think that there will be a billion dollar company in the next decade that has less than three employees. So that's that's crazy. That's um, you know, if you think back to the 1800s, you would have needed needed hundreds of thousands of people to be able to be what today would be a billion dollar company, and they're expecting just three people to be able to do that. So the decisions we're making are being leveraged, and most people are not taught how to make great decisions. I definitely wasn't in school. It wasn't until I got to pilot training when we really started to break down how to analyze our decisions, how to debrief them, how to change them for the next flight. And so that is carried on throughout my career. I break it down into what's called the ACE Helix, assess, choose, and execute. Being able to assess the world around us is critical. You need to have a, a high fidelity understanding of the problem you're looking at before moving on to making and choosing the correct course of action. Once you have that high fidelity understanding of the problem, then you can move on to choosing the correct decision. And that comes down to finding the expected value. So it just, uh, you know, it's like a financial problem. So you are looking at what is the probability of something good happening? How good is that? Minus the probability of something bad happening times how bad that is. So that's essentially what we're doing. I talk in the book about something called effects-based decision-making, which is really something that the Air Force has leaned on heavily for the last uh, 30, 30 years or so since the first Gulf War and really allowed us to be able to create a synergistic effect where the sum is greater than the parts. And then lastly, how to execute. When we're flying, sometimes there'll have been a thousand people that have played a part in the target that we're going after, from spies on the ground to intelligence officers to satellites to refueling tankers that have taken off from other continents, and you are the last link in the chain. And if you screw up, all of that work is for nothing. And a lot of times those high-value targets, you'll never see them again. So there's a lot of pressure. And so I talk about how to uh, you know, stay in the present moment, how to handle that pressure, and to excel. And that's something that the Air Force has really emphasized a lot in the last five years or so, the human performance aspect, especially the cognitive performance aspect of decision-making. So I go through all that in the book. Uh, it is being well-received. It's 
Uh, it's now a priority book for Barnes & Noble, which is a pretty big deal. It's a priority book for Meta, formerly Facebook, and it's been selected as a must-read by the Next Big Idea Club with Malcolm Gladwell. So it's pretty cool to see how it's being received. I also had a chance to do the audiobook, so typically... They'll hire somebody to do the audiobook, but I spent uh, several weeks training for the uh, audiobook and then was able to do it because most of the time people read for content and not precision. And so it typically takes about 30 hours of reading. So you have to read all those 30 hours and be as precise as possible. So it was a pretty interesting experience. I think it turned out really well. I also did some of the readings from the air while I was flying. So I don't think anybody's done that before. So kind of a unique experience to uh, to be able to do this audio book. The book comes out May 23rd. Uh, right now they're printing the first edition. So anybody that pre-orders right now until about the week uh, of May 23rd, so about until June 1st, will get the first edition copy. And traditionally that's the, that's the most prized, that's the most valuable one because it's really what the, exactly how the you know author intended it to, uh, to go out. So uh, feel free, I'll leave a link in the bio for how to order it, but it's something I'm really proud of. It's been a six year journey. I really started this podcast <clears throat> back in 2017 because of two things. One, I uh, had just come back from Afghanistan. I was writing down some of the stories that happened because we had a lot of action, a lot of things uh, occurred there. So I was kind of writing it just to almost uh, decompress. And then also, uh, when I was at Luke Air Force Base, they wanted somebody to speak on Memorial Day. Um, and so I gave the speech. There was a teacher in the crowd, and she said, um, why don't you start speaking to my students because they love aviation, but they don't know a lot about it. So I started speaking in those schools and then I was like, there's got to be a digital way to do it. And that's how this podcast was born. And then with writing the book, I really just combined the podcast with the writing I was doing anyway after, you know, kind of decompressing and coming back from Afghanistan. And that's how I developed the art of clear thinking. So it's been a six year journey. Like I said, I wrote uh, over 500 days in a row, wrote every word of it. So it's uh, it's a project that I'm really proud of. So feel free to, to go out and get it. Uh, hardback comes out uh, May 23rd. It's available for pre-order right now. And uh, same thing with the audiobook that's coming out as well. You can pre-order it now. Um, as an author, the most important thing are pre-orders because all of those count towards that first week of sales. So if you're going to buy the book, uh, I'd really appreciate you buying it uh, before uh, May 23rd or during the week of May 23rd. But uh, more than that, I hope it helps you to become a better decision maker. And I think it'll help the world to become a better place. I think decision making is a key skill for critical thinking and anything we can do to enhance that is worthwhile. All right, I have a couple questions that you guys reached out and asked me about. The first is, what are your thoughts on the F-35? So that's that's a good one. Um, so the F-35 is a great aircraft. So two things that you have to differentiate when you're talking about the F-35. The actual program of developing it, which was uh, behind timeline and over budget, 
they really tried to merge three fighters into one, the F-35A, B, and C, the Marine, the Navy, and the Air Force variant. So that was delayed due to something primarily called concurrency. Typically in a fighter program, they'll build a few airframes, 10 airframes, and they'll fly that for several years, find all the bugs, glitches, issues, and then start uh, the production line. The F-35, they decided to collapse that and not do that. So they did something called concurrency where they were just going to start cranking out the F-35s. It helped shorten the timeline by several years, but then they knew they'd have to go back and retrofit those F-35s afterwards. So it's a pretty big deal when you have hundreds of F-35s that you have to go back and fix. And some of those problems were really difficult. Now the plane itself is, is great. So it's, uh, you know, the F-16s I was flying, at Shaw Air Force Base were the newest F-16s in the Air Force inventory, and those were built in the early 2000s. The F-35 and the F-16 design is from the 1970s, but I'd say it's been updated to about 1990s-ish technology. F-35 is 40 years newer. It's a far better plane, but it is a different paradigm. So in the 60s, it was all about how high and how fast you could fly in the 70s with John Boyd, it became about how tightly you could turn and sustain that turn. But with the F-35, it's about a synergistic approach to air combat. So it's multi-domain. So you're not just going out with a two-ship or four-ship of fighters. That's probably the biggest misconception people have of air combat. It's, it's a 1v1 cage match. You just send up your best fighter. The enemy sends up their best fighter and you see who wins. It's really, you're sending hundreds of aircraft out and it's multi-domain. So you're going out with assets in the space, in space, cyberspace, on the ground, and you're all trying to find uh, the best way to defeat the enemy. And the enemy is doing the same thing to you. So it's, it's like three-dimensional chess out there. And so what the F-35 excels at is A, it's stealth. So that denies the enemy of situational awareness of what you're doing. Secondly, it has great sensors. So you can now see the enemy really well. They can't see you really well. So it's almost like playing football where you're invisible. After that, it's about networking. So networking is huge and yet it doesn't really show that well in say an air show. So you can't just pop the panel on the uh, F-35 and you know, show the computers underneath a, it's not that sexy and B it's classified, but the ability to network is huge. So 80% of the fighters we have right now are fortune, those legacy fighters like F 16s, F 18s, F 15s. And the F 16, for instance, is going to be around until the late 2040s. So it's critical that as F 35, uh, pilots that were able to pass them some situational awareness so that they can elevate their game. Otherwise, you know, if you just have a fleet with 20% fit gen fighters, they're doing their own thing, then those fourth gen fighters really miss out. After that, it's about sensor fusion for our sensors, really being able to fuse all that information together. In the F-16, we were flying with kind of a rat's nest of technology. It was 90s, 2000s, 2010s technology. And so the pilot, your brain was the fusion. So you would have to look at all these different screens in there and come up with the situation awareness of what was going on. F-35, far simpler. 
it fuses all that data together to be a red dot if it's a bad guy, green dot if it's a good guy. And it really takes uh, augmented reality to the next level. So that's something we had in the F-16, but the F-35, they got rid of the heads-up display. So everything is pumped into our helmet. So when you're looking out, you see all the good guys, you see symbols over them, uh, all the information you need to to know to work with them. The enemy, as you're looking out, you can see symbols over them and everything you need to know to engage them. You can see troops on the ground. It's just a really a next level uh, awareness that you have. We also have what are called distributed aperture cameras around the jet. They're mid-wave IR, so they see in pitch black. It stitches all that together. And at night, for instance, you can pump that into your helmet and that's where you can actually see through your body. And then lastly, I'd say with the F-35, the flight control system's fantastic. It's just a lot newer technology than the F-16. So it's pretty difficult from a flight control system to be able to understand the physics going on when you're skidding the jet through the sky, really doing high uh, angle of attack maneuvers. And the uh, F-35 really excels at that. We can almost, if you remember back to the first Top Gun, that flat spin out to sea, we can do that intentionally and have full control throughout that. So it's it's pretty special, pretty amazing uh, platform. So I think if you talk to any current fighter pilot or any fighter pilot that has flown uh, with F-35s in the last few years, uh, they'll say that it's extremely beneficial. So the only people I, I hear criticizing it now are really the uh, some of the old timers and some of the defense magazines, but it's really... Uh, almost undebatable that it is a huge asset on the battlefield. So that's those are my thoughts on the F-35. We just built the thousandth one, and we're building far more. F-22 now is going to be uh, phasing out, and it's a great aircraft. It kind of straddled the line between those fourth-gen fighters, that concept of turning tight, uh, third-gen fighters going fast, and then the F-35 with all the sensor fusion. So it kind of straddled in between that as it was built in the 1990s. And it's still a fantastic jet. The problem is they only built 180 of them. And these are so software and upgrade dependent. So you can either spend, you know, a couple hundred million dollars upgrading the F-35s, which they'll be, you know, 4,000 when all is said and done. Or you can spend that same couple hundred thousand upgrading 180 F-22s. So unfortunately, despite it being a fantastic platform, it is going to be phased out over the next decade or so. All right, next question is, what are the G-forces like when you're flying a fighter? So we will pull up to nine times the force of gravity. So right now, you're probably at 1G, just walking around. If you've ever been in a roller coaster that's really pushed your head down, done a loop, that's about 3Gs. So 9Gs is just crushing especially over up to six it's not bad six to nine really starts to starts to hurt and so nine g's that means for me i'm about 200 pounds 230 with my gear on that's over 2,000 pounds of force just pushing me into my seat the each arm weighs about 250 pounds the problem is it's pulling the blood out of your brain so if you lose enough blood you'll pass out and if you pass out you'll be incapacitated which is not good in a single seat fighter you'll be incapacitated even though you'll wake up in a few seconds for about 30 seconds and at the speeds we fly if you're pulling those g's you're probably going to be nose low uh so that you can use some of that radial g, radial g some gravity to help you out with the turn and unfortunately that means you're going to impact the ground in about 
20 seconds. Um, so unfortunately, we've lost about one pilot a year for the last 30 years to a G-lock, G-induced loss of consciousness. So we do a lot of training to be able to withstand those G-forces. So we do a lot of hit training because we'll be pulling the Gs for a few seconds, then we'll ease off, pull for a few seconds, ease off, reset. So it's about being able to sustain those Gs and then recover quickly. Um, we do, we practice a technique called AGSM, anti-G straining maneuver, where we're squeezing our calves, thighs, butt, abs, two-thirds of their breath, crisp air exchanges, keeping the pressure up uh, so that we can keep that blood back uh, in our brain. So it's, uh, you know, pretty physically demanding. In fact, just got back from a trip to NASTAR, the first civilian centrifuge, and we invited out uh, Tito Ortiz, one of the greatest uh, light heavyweight UFC fighters in history. You know, he's 240 pounds in great shape, and we put him in the centrifuge, uh, or he volunteered to go in the centrifuge, and he uh, he did a great job, but ended up G-locking at 9Gs just because, you know, the technique wasn't there. He was he ended up gassing out. He uh, strained too hard at the lower Gs and the, the high Gs. He wasn't keeping uh, air in his chest. And, uh, you know, despite how strong he was, you can't, once you get on the back end of those Gs, you can't catch back up. And he ended up doing a, uh, a pretty, pretty, uh, big G lock, uh, in the, uh, the centrifuge. Since, uh, 2016 or so, we've had something called auto GCAS auto ground collision avoidance system that, can help right the jet if it's pointed towards the ground and the pilot's incapacitated. There's some issues with it. For instance, the F-16 doesn't have auto throttle, so you know it, it depends on where the throttle is set, and you have to have good um, digital terrain uh, in the uh, the load, the software load. So there are some issues. It's not a uh, you know it doesn't work 100%, but it has saved already on the order of 15 pilots. So it's a great piece of technology that can help save the jet when it's out of control. So the G's are crushing as a fighter pilot. You, we, that's why we really focus on human performance. Just being 3% dehydrated can reduce your G tolerance by 50%. So it's huge. Um, so being hydrated, sleeping well, eating well is all, you know, a big factor. I think the biggest change as a fighter pilot over the last decade or so has been moving towards a high performance mindset. And so now, you know, all the pilots are in great shape. They, uh, they have physical trainers, nutritionists really trying to maximize, um, the use out of the pilots and help prolong their careers. Because before we were having a lot of issues with pilots having to, uh, be medically retired or grounded because they're having neck and back issues from those G forces. All right, next question is, what is it like to refuel? So I'll just kind of go with an overview for people that might not be familiar. So we will, as fighter pilots, refuel in the air. So we have flying gas stations, essentially, that are airline uh, airline passenger planes. Instead of passengers, it's filled with fuel. So we have the KC-135, the KC-10, and the KC-46. And so we'll pull up behind these aircraft. We have a fuel receptacle in the F-35 and F-16 behind the pilot. So you'll pull up, do, run an intercept on these tankers, and usually they're in an orbit. And then you pull up right behind their probe. So they will have a, uh, or boom, uh, 
two different types. There's a Navy one and an Air Force one, but there's a long boom at the end and you'll pop behind it. And then essentially what you're trying to do, it sounds weird, but you're trying to hit your helmet at a slow speed on the end of that boom. So you're just moving towards it at a few miles per hour. And there's a person in the aircraft that's controlling the boom called the boomer, and they'll move it out of the way typically to your right. And then there'll be a flashing F um, for going forward. And uh, then it'll stop. And then they will put the boom into your aircraft. It's a fully manual maneuver. It's not automatic. In fact, the KC-135s, those were, most of them were built in the 50s and 60s. So extremely old. They, uh, you know, most of the lights are burned out on them. And so it's, it's fully manual. It takes a long time as a student to really get comfortable doing it but afterwards it it kind of becomes routine so it's pretty easy unless you're in challenging conditions where you're in the weather it's really easy to get spatial disoriented i've seen pilots end up doing disconnecting and then doing a barrel roll right underneath the tanker because you're not able to see the uh, the artificial horizon you're not able to see your instruments because you're just so focused on maintaining the sight picture behind the aircraft so in the weather it can get tricky, especially if there's turbulence. Um, sometimes the tankers are having some issues. They're having to hand fly it. So it can be, it can be really challenging, but on a day-to-day basis, it becomes routine. All right. So I think that's all the questions I'll get to right now. If you have more questions, you can ask me on LinkedIn, on uh, Instagram, Facebook. I'm on all the platforms under Hazard Lee with an S. So H-A-S-A-R-D Lee. L-E-E, feel free to uh, to reach out to me on there if you want a question asked, usually on a post. So I'll put a post up every couple weeks or so doing a Q&A and then just ask your question there. It'll get upvoted and then I'll just answer the top questions. Um, other than that, I really hope you enjoy the book. Let me know what you think about it. Same thing. Feel free to take a picture of it, tag me in it, and uh, and I'll leave a comment on it. So I'm looking forward to the reaction for it. And I'm looking forward to doing more of these podcasts. It's one of the most enjoyable things that I've done going out and finding some of this siloed knowledge and information that people have from astronauts, CIA agents, race car drivers, and seeing some of the techniques that they've learned and how, uh, how people can apply them to their everyday life. So I appreciate the support. Looking forward to doing more of these podcasts and I'll see you next time.